speak in a nation country. Part of what we do in our ministry is we go to uh, secular places and we, we make a case for the gospel, we present the gospel, then people line up behind the microphone to ask questions and at that time your heart is really pumping harder. And so it's, it's, a, it's wonderful for me to be among people who are already committed to the truth of the gospel and to worship with you this morning and to know that there are millions of people around this globe who are gathered this day to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of God. So it's a wonderful day for each one of us to do that. Now, um, what I'm going to be talking about this morning in the context of nations will seem totally out of place to you because it's a very unusual passage that you're going to be looking at and uh, we'll be looking at the, the responsibility that God has given us in this world in a way that you've probably not thought of before. And so, um, our message this morning comes from Genesis chapter 19. You have the Bible with you. Genesis chapter 19. And please bear with me as I set the context for this, for this passage. Genesis chapter 19. Of course, Genesis 19 is the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Almost all the messages or all the references that I've ever heard from this passage focus on that theme of God's judgment against sin. Now that's an important theme to focus on and I don't want to minimize it in any way. In other passages of scripture refer to this very issue in warning us against, uh, against disobeying God and our Lord himself in Luke chapter 17 and verse 32 used that haunting one-liner referring to this incident again when he said, remember Lord's wife. So the theme of judgment is an important one for preachers to focus on from this passage. But there is a second theme that runs in tandem with that of judgment in this very passage. And that second theme is just as important and maybe even more important, especially when considered against the backdrop of the storyline of salvation, which runs throughout the scriptures. And this second theme is the theme of God using people like you and me to bring his blessings to the world, to others, reaching people, others, through his mercy and his blessings, using human agency. And so I have entitled this message, Agents of Blessings. Agents of blessings, because God wants you and me to become his special agents to spread his blessings around the world and his mercy around the world. That's the theme that we'll be focusing on, being agents of blessing. God using you and me to, to bless others, to reach and bless others. So let us see how this theme of God using you and me um, to bless others unfolds within this uh, dismal account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we begin reading from verse 1 of Genesis chapter 19. This is what it says. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please stand aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. 
we would spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Verse 4. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge? We'll teach you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. Verse 10, but the men stretched, but the men reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. Let's skip over to verse 27. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, that Lord, you may speak to us. And I ask, Lord, that you may... um, Anoint me as only you can, and I ask, Lord, that you may remove anything from this message that may be less than the best for your people. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for what you've, we've already heard today and sang um, in praises to you. Thank you, Lord God, for the privilege of gathering together to worship you. Now, um, this, this uh, passage, Genesis 19, occurs in the context of a writing style that Bible scholars refer to as an inclusio or brackets. Basically, what that means is this. The writer begins telling one story, and then he interrupts that story and inserts new material, and then he comes back later and picks up the previous story and concludes it. The intervening material serves to highlight the point that, that, that the passage is trying to make. Um, if, you ha- if we had the time, we would set Genesis 18 and, and, and 19 side by side and study them together. And what we would see is that at the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 18, the, the passage there is speaking about three men who have come to visit to, to uh, Abraham's tent. And in chapter 19, we see the same angels, the same men coming to Lot's house. What we, we would see some, some major differences in the way, the way these men interact with Abraham on the one, on the one hand, and the way that they interact with Lot. You see, um, Genesis 19 from, so 18 is about Abraham. From 19 verse 1 all the way to verse 26 is the story of Lot and the destruction of Sodom. And then verse 20, verses 26, 27, and 28 of chapter 19, if you're still following me, Abraham is brought back into the picture. And verse 29 concludes Abraham's role in this story with a very powerful statement, which is the theme of our message this morning. Listen, if you forget everything that I say this morning, just remember Genesis uh, 19, verse 29, and you will have the entire message intact. This is what the, the, the verse reads. It says, 
So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. It's very, very easy for you and me to miss how radical this statement, this summary statement is. I read the book of Genesis many times and missed it every time. Notice what it says. It almost reads like a mistake. This is what it says. God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. He remembered who? Abraham and rescued Lot. Why didn't God say that he remembered Lot and rescued him? The reason was this. God wanted you and me to realize that the deliverance of Lot from Sodom was based on the righteous intercession of his uncle Abraham. It was because of Abraham that Lot was rescued from Sodom. And again, if we had the time to compare these two individuals side by side, we would see some amazing contrasts. Genesis 18, like I said, talks about three visitors coming to Abraham. Genesis 19 talks about the same visitors coming to Lot's house. What we would see is the warmth of the relationship between these visitors and Abraham on the, on the one hand, and the tension or the uneasiness that is there between Lot and these same visitors. Uh, for example, when Abraham invites them into his house, his invitation is accepted without question, but Lot has to plead with them to wear them out so that they can agree to come to his house. They prefer to spend the night out in the dangerous streets rather than come into Lot's house. When the visitors are in Abraham's house, there is great joy and they have a feast there. They even leave a blessing there and they say, by this time next year, you will have a son. But when they're in Lot's house, there is only the chaos and the tension that is there where the peace of God is absent. And perhaps the greatest contrast of all is that when these men show up in Abraham's tent, there are three of them. But by the time they get to Lot, there are only two of them, the two angels of destruction. And I think, I believe it's safe to infer from the passage that the Lord himself did not go to Sodom and Gomorrah, only the angels of destruction went to Sodom and Gomorrah. These two individuals are very, very different. Lot's house is not the kind of a place where you scurry in through the back door, kick off your shoes, take off your jacket, slouch on the couch, and ask, what's for dinner? It's the kind of a place where you are on pins and needles, waiting for the time to come when you can go to a place where you are more welcome, you are more accepted. It is the nature of, a, of persons not to show up in places where they are not wanted. And God is a person. Revelation 3.20, which was written to believers, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. That was to believe us that it is possible for us to shut God out of our lives, even as believers, and to live in such a way that we are following our own wishes and our own wants and not what God wants, want, want, wants for us. And what I'm going to do now is to draw a couple of lessons from this passage that I believe are, are very, very crucial and very important and ones that we must always uh, be cognizant of in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. And the first lesson that I want to draw from this passage is this. We all need to be thankful for the Abrahams in our own lives. We need to be thankful 
for the Abrahams in our own lives. Our lives are to be characterized by an attitude of gratitude for those who have gone before us and paved the way or opened doors for us to be where we are today. Lot is one of the most fascinating characters in the scriptures. The first time we meet him, he's an incredibly blessed man. As long as he's hanging around his uncle Abraham, he's a blessed man. But at the end of this story, he's living in a cave, having lost everything that he owned. And we want to see what happened in between. The other is very, very deliberate in driving home this point by comparing these two individuals and revealing the character of Lot and why it is that his life took the turn that it, that, that, that it did. Because Lot's life is a complete mess. Even those people at the city where he was, where he was uh, living had no respect for him. He goes to warn the, the, the young men who are engaged to his daughters about the coming destruction. And you know what the Bible says? They think that he is, laugh- he, he, is, uh, he is joking. And so they laugh at him. And that's the same thing. When our lives don't measure up with God's ideal for us, our neighbors and those who, to whom we try to witness think that we are joking. They will not take our message seriously. Lot, uh, when he's faced with a, such a difficult decision, he offers to have this man violate his own daughters. I have read some commentators who think, who say that hospitality was more valued in this culture than, than what Lot was about to do. I personally think that it is better to see the point that is being made here and it's to show the character of Lot, what Lot was really like and why it was that God had to remember Abraham in order to rescue Lot. So what we see again, and the point that I'm trying to make is this, we are in spite of the the, uh, incredible life that Lot lived, we also have Abrahams in our lives and we have been rescued because of, well, we, have, we are where we are because of those who have gone, us, gone before us and paved the way for us. That's the point that I'm trying to make. But today, we live in a period where we are actually encouraged to think that we have, we have pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we have made it by ourselves because, because we live in a very individualistic uh, world today. Uh, after analyzing surveys from 1.3 million respondents uh, spanning a period of several decades, uh, psychology researcher and social critic Jean Twenge, who teaches at the San Diego State University, says that an attitude of entitlement and self-focus have become endemic, especially among those who are under 40 years. This is what she writes. We speak the language of the self as our native, as our native tongue. So much of the common sense advice that's given these days includes some variation on self. Are you worried about how to act in a social situation? Just be yourself. What's the good thing about your, your alcoholism, drug addiction, murder conviction? I learned a lot about myself. Concerned about your performance? Believe in yourself, often followed by, and anything is possible. Should you buy the new pair of shoes or get the nose ring? Yes, express yourself. Why should you leave the unfulfilling relationship? Quit the boring job? Tell off your mother-in-law? You have to respect yourself. Trying to get rid of a bad habit? Be honest with yourself. Confused about the best time to date or get married? You have to love yourself before you can love someone else. Should you 
express your opinion, yes, stand up for yourself. And so many young people enter the workforce with unrealistic expectations about their own ability to succeed without the discipline that it actually takes to succeed and without a healthy appreciation for the sacrifices of those who have gone before them. And the results, says Twenge, is high levels of anxiety and depression and mounting debt in an age of instant gratification. Hence the title of her book, Generation Me, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever Before. If you want a classic illustration of this, just for the opening nights of a program like American Idol, where many young people show up completely convinced that they are the best singers in the world until they meet the Simon Cowers of this world who tell them that they have no idea what singing is all about. But this is the, the, the world in which we live, where we are so confident and so focused on ourselves, and we pay no attention whatsoever to anything that has gone on before us and those who have paved the way for us to be where we are. Dallas Willard defines reality as what you bump up against when your beliefs are false. Reality is what you bump up against when your beliefs are false. Uh, reality does not adjust to fit our wrong-headed beliefs about it. The fact of the matter is, we all depend on others in ways that we don't always recognize. We depend, for example, we, we depend, for example in a simple way, on inventors who, whose dedication to their crafts make it f- possible for us to communicate so easily, or researchers who have improved our, 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 our health through, through various discoveries, or even some, uh, some tip on parenting that you had, you heard somebody say, and you adopted it as your own, and you have lived with that, and it has worked for you, but you never remember who said it. You, you always, we always live as though we've always known it. Those are simple ways in which we, de- we have to depend on others. But we also depend on others in many profound and undeniable ways. Because we all begin life in this world as helpless babies, totally dependent on outside help for our existence. And we, we owe much to parents who nursed us when we were 100% dependent on outside help, to a teacher or maybe a coach who said something kind or something nice that encouraged you to move on and to try harder, or to young soldiers who give their lives on the battlefields of this world to protect our freedom. And the greatest of all, we, we owe a lot to the God who saves us because he remembered his son. When you reflect on what it takes for us to exist in this world, you come to realize that ours is a sorry tale of total dependence in light of which pride and self-sufficiency are total illusions because we are dependent beings in this world. I read a story some time ago that, uh, that illustrates this so well. This is what it says. A party of tourists visiting historic places in Europe was taken to the home of Beethoven. When the guide led them to the music room, he said in an awestruck voice that this was the great Beethoven's piano. One of the party, a young girl who was a very talented musician but impetuous, rushed across the room, opened the piano, and played very beautifully. Getting up, she came back to the party and said to the guide, I suppose everybody who comes here wants to play on Beethoven's piano. And he responded, no. Paderowski was here a short time ago, and he felt he was not worthy. You may be extremely gifted at what you do, but we are always building 
on the, on the sacrifices, on the work of others. And none of us gets where we are on our own. None of us gets where we are on our own. You know, um, sometimes, sometimes we think that it is easy to give thanks to God and to praise God and to do, uh, and to live the way He wants us to when everything is going well. But that is not always true. That's the time, that's the time when we, we are at the greatest risk of depending on ourselves and, and not acknowledging where our blessings come from. You know, uh, Abraham Lincoln, who wasn't, uh, uh, an evangelical, who may not have been an evangelical believer, but he was raised in a Christian home. He knew the danger of that kind of thinking. And this is what he said in one of his uh, addresses in 1863. He said, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power, as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. One only wonders what he would say today. No, sometimes we think that success corrupts people, but success doesn't do that. All success does is it gives us the chance to show what we are really, really, truly like. That's all success will do to us. And so we must remember that we have, we are where we are because of the sacrifices of other people, and we need to be thankful for their sacrifices. We need to be thankful for the Abrahams in our own lives. But some of us look down our family tree, and we can't really see many examples to be thankful for. All we can see are the various uh, victims hanging from its branches. And it becomes, at that point, it becomes very difficult for us to be thankful. And that's why the gospel is such good news. Because what the gospel says is this, that you can choose to break that cycle. That you can actually begin anew and say from this day forward, People in my family are going to be blessed because of my relationship with God. And God invites each one of us to do that, which leads us, which leads me to my second point. The first point was, we have to be thankful for the Abrahams in our own lives. And my second point is, we have been called to become Abrahams ourselves for the sake of others. We have been called to become Abrahams ourselves for the sake of others. And you know, this is a message that I can preach propositionally using the scriptures and all kinds of examples, but I can also preach it from my own experience. You know, when I was growing up, my, there was no one in my family who was a believer. I did not know anyone, even in my extended family, who was a follower of Jesus Christ. And my parents were having a very, very difficult time in their, in their marriage. And at one point, my dad actually kicked out the family and, and forced my mom to take care of seven kids by herself with no education, no marketable job skills, and no, uh, and no, and no home. We were basically homeless uh, for a while, for, several, for a period of several years. There were people who owned huge farms, and they had little shacks that they would come. They didn't live on the farms. They had, this, they had built these shacks, and they would come live there when they were working on their, on their farms. And we lived in those shacks. 
have moving from one to the other. They would tell us when they were coming and we would move to the next one. And that's how we lived for many years. I know what it's like to go to bed hungry for several days in a row with my mom sick in the hospital. I know what it's like to be laughed at and ridiculed by students and even by some teachers because of the conditions under which my family was living. And I know what it's like to be woken up by rain pouring through the roof as you're trying to sleep. I know what it's like to grow up in the darkness without the light of the gospel in your life. Those are the conditions in which we lived. But praise God, I also know what it's like for God to reach down into a home and a place like that and pull somebody else out and teach them the truth of the gospel through the influence of some missionaries and actually some of those missionaries from right here in New Jersey who took me in, who took me in as one of their children and taught me the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I gave my life to Christ when I was about 14 years old. And I kept praying that God would somehow shed the light of the gospel into the lives of, uh, of, 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 of my family. And one day, my mom agreed to come to church with me. When the altar call was given, she was the only person that day who got up to give her life to Christ. And my mom and I were baptized the following day. And to, I mean, we were baptized together uh, a couple of Sundays after that. And today, everyone in my family, all my siblings, are followers of Jesus Christ. But, but there was one person that I really, truly cared about. And this was my grandmother. At one point, when my mom and dad were having so many difficulties, my sister and I were sent to go and live with my grandmother. And we loved uh, our grandmother so much. But she had, she had grown up. She had watched colonialists, the colonialists, come into the country together with the missionaries. And she could not tell the difference. All she could see was that her family had lost everything. So when I shared the gospel with her, told her about Jesus... She was very disappointed in me. And she said to me, the only reason you have fallen, as she put it, you have fallen for the white man's religion is because you, you are too young to understand what these people did to us. Now, you need to know a couple of things about my grandmother. She was uh, highly respected in her neighborhood. What she said was what was done in, in, uh, in, in village meetings. She was highly respected. She was also addicted to tobacco. She used to sniff tobacco. And we would go looking, hunting for it if she ran out of it, even at night. She could not function without it. And also she was very much afraid of death. So we never really talked about death at home because of some superstitious ideas that she held. So I shared the gospel with her and she's disappointed in me. But I kept praying for her. And before I left Kenya to come to the U.S., I took another opportunity to share the gospel with her. And I explained the, the plan of salvation as clearly as I knew how. And again, there was no reaction. I didn't even know whether she heard me. I left Kenya and came to the U.S. It was going to be 10 years before I went back to Kenya. But six years um, into my stay here in the U.S., I called home and my grandmother happened to be there. And she asked if she could speak with me. And uh, I, when she came to the phone, I knew she had something important to say to me. She said to me, child, I heard what you told me about accepting Christ and asking Jesus to forgive me of my sins. And you know what she said? I, I asked him, I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins. And you know what he did? She said, the moment I prayed that prayer... God took away from me the desire to sniff tobacco. I have not touched it ever since. I'm just full of the joy of Jesus Christ in my life. 
Now, if you knew anything about my family, you would know that this was, uh, this was, this was, uh, this was breaking news worthy of coverage by all the major networks because um, <laughs> my, my grandmother said to me, I know that I'll never uh, get to meet your beautiful wife. Like, like I said, my wife and I were married here in, in New Jersey. And she said, but long before you were born, I used to make purses. And I have made one for your beautiful wife by which she can remember me until we are together on the other side. My grandmother died, died a couple of months later. And you know, it, it always gives me joy. When I go to another place to speak, and then I, go, I look forward to going back home and hearing my wife and my, my children saying, we missed you, Dad, welcome back home. But how wonderful, how marvelous it is for me to know that on that day, when I show up in the gates of heaven, among the people who will be welcoming me, will be my own grandmother. This, because there are people who are willing to go out and share the gospel in places like Kenya and in other places of this world where God is reaching people and changing lives in very, very incredible ways. God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. And he wants you and me to become an Abraham in somebody's life. First, we need to be thankful for the Abrahams in our lives. Then we have to become Abrahams in our own lives in the way that God has, has called each one of us to be. And what we see is that once we've given our lives to Christ, and once we have learned to know God in this way, it immediately translates into love for other people, into wanting um, nothing else more than having other people come into, into a knowledge of this relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, Abraham had many reasons to be angry with Lot. When he and Lot separated, Lot chose the best of the land, and Abraham was left with the worst of the land. So when, when Abraham heard that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot could easily have said, well, serves him right. He deserves it. Just go and do it. Go on and do it. But he didn't do that. He went on his knees and prayed, pleaded with God on behalf of Lot, in spite of the kind of a person that Lot, that, that Lot was. And we see this going on throughout the scriptures, that when we know God as he wants us to know him, this translates into concern and care for other people. For example, when God, God threatened to destroy the nation of Israel, do you know what Moses did? He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, pleading with God on behalf of the Israelites. And he prayed, he said to God, I wish my name could be blotted out of the book of life for the sake of this nation. Paul, in the New Testament, does the same thing. He says he wishes that his name could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of, his, of, 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 of God's people, of his people. Today, we have many people who lament the evils of our time. You can find study after study documenting all kinds of problems with the church today. Young people don't care about God anymore. Our society has rejected God. The word of God is no longer taught in some churches. A large percentage of Christians do not believe in uh, absolute truth anymore. And it, the list goes on. All the kinds of laments that we can, that, that we can raise. All, all the things that are wrong with the church. And I'm not dispute, disputing any of that. Or minimizing the issues. Those are, those are serious, serious issues. But my question is this. Where are the men and women of God who bend their knees and cry out to God on behalf of these same, these same people, on behalf of our nation? You know, 
God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot and he's looking for Abrahams today that he can remember and rescue somebody out there. What shall it profit the soul of our nation when we fight for prayer in our schools if there is no prayer in our homes and in our churches? What difference would that make? This leads me to my third and final point. I said we are, thank- we are to be thankful for the Abrahams in our own lives. We are called to be Abrahams for the sake of others. And my last point is this. We become Abrahams for the sake of others. We become Abrahams for the sake of others by developing a history with God. We have to develop a history with God in our own lives. That's how we become Abrahams in our, in, in, for the sake of others. And that's exactly what, um, that's exactly what, what Abraham had done. See, one of the best advices I ever got before I stepped into the ministry came from one of my professors in a, a Talbot seminary. His name is J.P. Mullen, and he said, he said to us as a group of students, whatever you do, do not go into the ministry to get your needs met. Learn to seek God. Learn to draw nourishment directly from God himself, and then go out and serve God out of that fullness uh, of, of joy that comes from God himself. And he said, if we, don't, if we make the mistake of, of not recognizing what the source of our strength is, we will never lack something or someone to complain about in, in, in the church and we will be blind to our own faults. But when it's God himself that we are seeking, there's a place for us to be corrected, there, there, are, there's, there's room for us to grow, and there's room for us to be merciful to, to, uh, to other people. And that's what I try to do in my own ministry, to come to God, to come before God exactly as I am so that he can be able to change me and transform me and to make me the kind of person that he wants me to be. You know, we clean up, we get everything, we, we get ourselves looking really good when we come to church and we pretend as though all those issues are really not there when they are there. But the gospel is addressed to the real person that we are, not to the polished image that we try to present to one another. Someone sent me this story which illustrates this point in a, in a very very fun way, and I, um, I, I, I think I should read it to you. I think you, 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 you will recognize the point here. This is, it's called, When Grandma Goes to Court. This is what it says. Lawyers should never ask a Mississippi grandma a question if they are not prepared for the answer. In a trial, a southern small-town prosecuting attorney called his first witness, a grandmotherly elderly woman, to the stand. He approached her and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She replied, why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you ever since you were a boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. (laughs) You lie, you're unfaithful to your wife, and you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big shot when you haven't the brains to realize that you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. (laughs) The lawyer was stunned. Not knowing what else to do, he pointed across the room and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? She again replied, Why, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. He's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state. Not to mention that he, like you, is also unfaithful to his wife. Yes, I know him. (laughs) The defense attorney nearly died. The judge asked both counselors to approach the bench. And in a very quiet voice, he said, 
if either of you idiots ask her if she knows me, I'll send you both to the electric chair. <laughs> what, what a relief it is for us to know that God knows us exactly as we are and he loves and accepts us as we are and he really wants to change us. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. God knows us as we are, but he wants to change us and make us Abrahams for the sake of others. Now, because of what, what I've said about Lot, it's easy for us to come to the conclusion that was, Lot was just a pagan who did not know any better. But in the, in the, in the book of Second Peter, verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 7, the apostle Peter tells us that Lot was a righteous man who was tormented daily by the filthy life that he saw around him in his city. Second Peter 2 verse 7. Lot knew what was right, and he believed it, and it tormented him. But he found it very difficult for him to extricate himself, himself from it all, which is where many of us are many times, where we can lament the evils, we can, we can, we can recognize what's wrong with our society, and, and talk about it endlessly, but yet we are right there with it, glued to the TV or, or, or whatever it is that, that we're doing progressing along with all that's going on instead of setting a contrast for the kingdom of God, which is what we have been called to do. Unless we are prepared to rise up about the influences around us and to stand out as those who have been called out to represent Christ in this world, we will continue to play the role of, of Lot in this life in spite of our claim to worship the true and living God instead of being Abraham's for the sake of others. Abraham was not a perfect man, but like many others before him, he was willing to make difficult choices for God. Lot was willing to trade his, his soul for the comfort of the cities of this world. But the writer to the Hebrew tell, Hebrews tells us that Abraham lived as a stranger in this world because he was looking for an internal city whose builder and architect is God which is exactly how we're supposed to be living in this world. We must be thankful for the Abrahams in our own lives. We need to become Abrahams for the sake of others, and we do that by developing a history with God. And when we live like that, missions, reaching out others, whether it's across the street or around the world, becomes a joy and a passion in our lives because we know God and we know that these people who are lost need his grace and that God wants each one of us to become a special agent of his blessings in this world, in a world that desperately needs special agents of blessings. God bless you all.